All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbit Weasel podcast, episode number 48. I am back with Matt today. Just Matt. How are you doing, man? Great. Glad to be here. Good to have you back. We did uh, a few months ago, we did the first Friday the 13th movie. And now we're back with uh, the second one. So um, I guess we talked, I don't even remember what all we talked about last time. It's been so long. I know we talked a lot about how we got into the franchise, um, kind of general thoughts on the series as a whole. Um, so I guess real quickly, you want to remind us, how did you get into these movies? And then I guess your first memories of this one, when do you remember first seeing part two? Well, uh, part two, I think was the first one that I saw probably watching it um, with my mom when it was on TV. Um, and so it was a movie I think I saw, you know, bits and pieces of, you know, because I was terrified and I was just watching, you know, the bits that I could see through my fingers. Um, but I do remember certain scenes and I'll, I'll um, comment on those later, probably when we, when we discuss those. But um, that sort of was one of the, the inciting moments. I think one of the other inciting moments was when we would go to the video store when, they, when it first opened and I saw the, the first three, the 13th lined up in a row and just kind of fascinated by the covers and what was inside of them that sort of led to eventually, you know, just trying to see them all. Yeah, but Friday the 13th part two, I think was for a long time, my favorite one, Um, but I think it's kind of been moved down in the rankings, but thinking about it lately this week is kind of, has gone back and forth for me. So it's a, it's really interesting one. At first when we, we were talking about, discussing this movie I thought well there's there's just not going to be a lot to talk about with Friday 13 part two but now that I've thought about it a little bit I'm like there's, there's so much that I don't know if we'll have enough time yeah I uh so real quickly my background story uh with this series I saw I first got into it with Freddie versus Jason I know you know the story uh which came out when I was almost 13 not quite 13 yet and um you know, all criticisms of that film aside, I loved it at that age, you know, uh, so I went and got all of the, uh, all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, all the Friday 13th movies, and just started working my way through them, uh, on DVD, (laughs) so this one, you know, periodically, I love these movies at that age, uh, it was how I kind of really got into horror, and, I know I've seen this one many, many times because periodically you sit down like I'm going to watch them all again. And usually you make it to what, seven or eight <laughs> and stop. But uh, so I've seen this one quite a few times. So, yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, you said this this used to be one of your one of your favorites, but it's kind of dropped down a little bit. Um, how would you compare this one to the first one? Do you feel it, does it hold up to the first one? Is it better than the first one? What do you think? That's such a tough question. Um, <laughs> I, I think ultimately, I think the first one is better. It's more successful at what it's trying to do. But there's really so many great things about that the, the second one brings in to the series and that it's good at. It's, it's got some really great scares that I love that I think sometimes more successful than some of the original scares. But I think ultimately there's, when you're watching it, there's sort of this double-edged thing where there's a lot of questions that are not answered that add a lot of sort of mystery. And that's kind of good. There's a lot of questions that are brought up where you're just like, what the heck is going on? Like, why are these things happening? And who 
who wrote this movie. You know, like there's just a lot of things that you you have to work very hard to explain away. First watching the movie, it goes by so fast. Like it's a really quickly paced movie. After you get past the prologue and the opening titles, it's just a 75 minute movie after that. Um, and the, it just, it goes at a, a very quick pace and you don't really have a lot of time to think about all these little details. You know, looking back at it that, um, or from reading about it, the, the director, you know, Steve Miner, who worked on the first one, his sort of idea was that, you know, even if there were dumb things in the movie, and he respected the first one, he liked the first one. Um, and his idea was, you know, let's just do the first one, but plus, you know, like, let's just make it, give them what they want, but a little bit different, a little bit better. He thought that people would just have fun with the dumb things. Like they, they were really kind of big on the audience participation aspects of these movies. And so I'm not sure they, they paid as much attention to these little issues that we might see. Like just an example would be like, why, why does Scott, that character, when he gets trapped in that trap, like who set the trap? Why is there a <laughs> trap there? Like, you know, what's going on? You know, it's just, uh, if you think too hard about the trap, <laughs> you have a lot of questions that really interfere with the rest of the movie, but I think people are just have fun with it. Um, and ultimately, it was a time, I think when this was made, it was really before VHS was really taken off. I mean, I think the VHS for part one came out in, in 1981, but I don't know if it was before or after part two came out. Um, that as, as much, you know, they weren't watching them over and over again at home to see errors. So I think at this point in time, they just weren't as concerned about those little, what you might call a continuity mm. issue or like a script issue. I'm not really sure. And again, some of these things I think add to the enjoyment of Friday the 13th. Like all the questions we have about Jason, our endless ability to speculate about what the heck is going on. Jason, how did this happen? How did that happen? I think adds to Friday the 13th as a whole. Um, it gives you a lot to talk about, that's for sure. <laughs> with other fans. Exactly. If they explained it all and it all made sense, like, I don't know if we would still be all that fascinated even by, by Jason and stuff like that. Um, but some of the things, I mean, when you're speculating about who lives and who died at the end of the movie, you know, like, that's kind of irritating. It's like, why don't we know if Paul's alive or not? But that's right. Talk about that later. But yeah, know. before we, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of the, even the old universal horror movies. Those, those were a ton of Frankenstein movies. And there was always a sequel kind of like these or it sort of picks up where the last one was, but they fudge things however they needed to. Like, how did Frankenstein survive that last one? Oh, there was a giant, uh, a cave underneath the waterfall you know, <laughs> or underneath the, uh, the windmill, that sort of stuff. So just yeah. don't think too much about it. But um, in case you did forget what happened in the last movie, this one starts off with, I think I timed it. The first six minutes are basically just a recap. <laughs> Um, where Alice, who was our big survivor from the last movie, is traumatized. She's at home and she's having nightmares and we see her nightmares basically just replaying how the last movie ended. And then, you know, I wonder going into this movie, because by the time I got into this series, all the movies were already there, except for the remake, which came out later. Um, so I wonder, have you heard... When this movie came out, did people know who the killer was going to be or was it just a big mystery? How was it promoted? Any idea? I, I think the assumption that it was that it was going to be Jason somehow, even though Jason's supposed to be dead. I think that um, 
they really was not a mystery to the plot of who the killer was. I think that mystery was kind of replaced by essentially the urban legend of Jason, which is kind of like Cropsy, you know, that, that Northeastern camp mountain killer. Um, and I, I'm not sure there may have been people who thought maybe this is Jason's dad coming to kill the, the campers and there's a misdirect about Jason um, or that there would be some kind of twist reveal at the end. I'm not really sure, but um, they, it was kind of funny with the flashback. They, they really tried to copy so much from part one. It's, it's almost ridiculous how much they copied. And then it's weird, the things they didn't copy. Um, Cause they, they even went so far, as you said, to put six minutes of the first movie in this movie, <laughs> you know, right at the beginning. Um, but we've got Alice returning right away. We've got um, even Pamela returns and some flashbacks at the end. We've got crazy Ralph returning. So that's three of the, the sort of major characters. We've got a lot of similar kills, a lot of similar characters. We've got a cop, we've got a rainstorm, we've got a really long final chase, um, a big final jump scare we'll talk about. And a lot of the people that worked on the first one worked on the second one. So it's really interesting to think that that really one of the things they had to change was the killer because um, mm -hmm. it couldn't be Mrs. Voorhees anymore. And as much as they might have wanted to copy the first one entirely, like they were kind of, I think, concerned that they wanted to give people exactly the same, right? But different. But it had to be different enough so they didn't think they were watching the same movie. They didn't want people coming out at the end and saying, I want my money back. I saw this last year, you know? Right. Um, so there was just a few things that they changed. They changed the killer. Uh, and the killer goes from a female to a male. So it's also kind of interesting. This final girl goes from someone who's kind of um, more manly in the first one, like flannel pants, flannel shirt, pants, working on a cabin right when we see her, you know, to Jenny, who's shows up in a long pink skirt and is a much more feminine kind of, although still resourceful, character it's almost like they had had to adjust the final girl a little bit um who's also different but again they brought back adrian king for the beginning just to bring in more of that first one and of course they changed the camp which you from being an actual camp to being a counselor training center which i don't know if there are counselor training centers that's something that i haven't investigated but um Theoretically, like this is just a place where counselors go to learn how to go be a counselor, um, which I don't think it's, it takes two weeks at a special camp to do. But um, it's weird that they changed that. But I guess you could kind of explain that by the fact that they wanted it to be around Crystal Lake. But who's going to send their kids there even five years later um, to this lake after a whole bunch of counselors were murdered? Like I wouldn't think that most people would send their kids there so maybe they thought the only thing they could get away with was the counselor training center. <laughs> um i don't know but then after that it's really about the same kind of situations and everything like that except for you know dealing with jason sort of there's a lot of weird stuff too but that prologue um, how do you feel about it? you think the prologue's effective you think it's scary yes um i mean watching it again now i've seen the, these movies so many times it's it's very hard for me to try and watch them with complete objective eyes you know uh i remember when i was 
seeing it for the first time, yeah, I thought it was pretty, um, pretty good. Obviously, now I'm just kind of like, okay, I get through. I just watched the, the first movie. I know what happens. Uh, but all the stuff with her getting, uh, being stalked, because really the first thing you see is someone outside. And you just see their legs. This is really, this movie is more like being chased by a pair of legs, right? <laughs> but uh, you're like, uh-oh, there's someone there. And then there's a really... Um, there's some like unnecessarily long takes here. You know, she has this whole argument with her mom and then she goes and takes the world's shortest shower. <laughs> um, uh, then she gets another phone call and then things start getting kind of tense where no one's there and you already know there's someone outside. Um, it's kind of, you get the cat jump scare, you know, like, oh, someone's at the window and then they just throw a cat through the window, which to me is one of the biggest cliches that's up there with the car won't start and you know someone coming up behind you and grabbing your shoulder it's really just your friend um but now i wonder were there a lot of cat jump scares like in the 70s and back or was that more of like an 80s slasher thing because <laughs> uh, question yeah, yeah maybe so, that was just being established I, yeah I maybe this was what uh, kind of started it around this time anyone in the comments let us know when did the whole cat jump scare thing start um but then, of course, so that defuses the tension, and that's the moment when open the refrigerator. Ah, it's her head. That freaked me out as a kid. Like, there's a, oh, someone brought the head and put it in the refrigerator. Then she gets stabbed, and it's over. And I feel like this is kind of a, I guess this was a pretty big twist at the time. Not quite as big as Psycho, but that's what I thought of, where your main character is killed off uh, at the beginning of the movie. What do you think? Was that a... Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that people, they weren't good. They weren't sure if she was going to survive or not, you know, when they came into this movie. She's in the trailer a little bit, but um, I don't think people knew. Um, so it's possible that the, it was a surprise in the sequence that she was killed. Um, I think it was. I mean, I think when I think of the sequence, I or when I watch it, I always think of Scream because she's on the phone. I was a little thinking bit. that too. <laughs> yeah, and the killer calls and hangs up. Supposedly, like supposedly in this one, Jason maybe potentially uses the phone. But we don't know for sure that it was Jason. But theoretically, he's he found a phone somewhere just outside and called her. Um, maybe not. But um, like you said, like flashback is like six minutes. This whole sequence is like. 12 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's a large part of the movie. And apparently it was only just filmed in a few days at the end of filming. Um, and Adrian King improvised that phone conversation. Um, and she worked with, with Steve Miner to kind of almost improvise the whole stock sequence, I think. Um, and to me, I feel like they are trying to tell the audience something like, and maybe I'm thinking too much about it, but I feel like they're kind of like when they come up to the house, it's very Halloween-like. And when they're, like you're saying, when that whole stalk and slash scene is very like drawn out and you keep expecting, you know, like if you haven't seen it before, you think, okay, when's it, when's it gonna happen? <laughs> you know, and it's like for 12 minutes, you're like, it's gonna happen. Um, and then finally it happens. I feel like they're kind of saying, so the audience, like, we're just gonna have fun here. You know, like, we're just, we're gonna try to scare you. We're gonna try to do all these stupid things and we're gonna have fun. Don't worry about it too much, you know? Right. Um, you know, don't think about everything. You know, it ruined the experience, basically. Um, yeah, and this was filmed like in a different part, like the outside was filmed in a different part than the inside. I don't know if you, in a different town even than the inside part. Um, 
which is kind of interesting. And there's different people playing Jason. The Jason outside is different than the Jason inside. And neither of those Jasons are the people that played Jason in the main part of the movie. There's like multiple people who played Jason. Yeah, I just like that uh, Jason is nice enough to take the tea off the stove or the coffee, whatever she's making. Yes, yes. And in the novelization, he turns the stove off, <laughs> which is Aww. nice too. Um, it's really, it's confusing. I think for a long time, I was like, why, why has he left Jason? Why has he left Crystal Lake to kill Alice? Like, is this, how did he find Alice in the place? Like, what is, yeah. how is this whole sequence happening? Um, the novelization, I think, has a good um, explanation, which is, and it's, it's kind of supported by her conversation on the phone, which is where um, she has had a hard time dealing with the events of the first movie, which were just a couple of months ago in terms of the movie time. And so she's come back to Crystal Lake to deal with it the only way she knows how, which is what she says in the conversation. Um, and then the novelization, she sort of like visited the lake earlier in the day and then for the, the week or whatever. And then she's gone back to this apartment that she's staying in. And so he's followed her from the lake to the apartment. Now you say, well, why? why are you bringing your mom's head to put it in the fridge just for this like complicated killer, just killer, you know? Um, but it actually kind of makes sense with the whole logic of the movie. Cause I think ultimately we see that Jason is sort of like doing this all for his mom. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and this is the person that killed his mom, beheaded her. And so he sort of situated this head so it can witness the killing of, of Alice. Um, and this is kind of interesting. Like Adrian King would say that she didn't know that she was supposed to die in this movie and that they kind of left it and that someone had told her like a producer or something, they were, they were going to leave it open or maybe she could come back later. But you know, the ice pick to the head looks pretty fatal. And like right. for a long time, everyone's like, well, how on earth would you have even come back? But since they've shown, um, I don't know if you've seen it on the new, the new box set, they found the, the uncut gore footage, you know, Carl Fullerton had a VHS tape that they located and they put that out. Um, and in it, you can see the, the ice pick go into the temple, but it kind of comes out her nose. So I think you could kind of think that, well, maybe it just, you know, blinded her or something like that. Mm -hmm. But but then later you see her body, which is clearly her body. I mean, you don't see her face. It's like a de decomposed corpse with an ice pick sticking out of its head in the shack around the mm -hmm. altar of his mom. So, so it's obviously think, she died. <laughs> and right, she took yeah. her body back to Crystal Lake. Yeah. Um, they say that she was never found, you know, later on. So right. the, the movie actually jumps forward then five years, which kind of screws the timeline even more. But uh, yeah, they say that uh, they never find her body. So I think what we're dealing with here with Jason is, I mean, Throughout this whole movie, Jason is not the character. Most people know at this point, Jason's not in the first movie, or at least he's not the killer. Um, but Jason doesn't really become the character we think of him as until the third movie. Yeah, so this one, he's still a hillbilly monster with a bag on his head, right? Yeah. So it's not really established what his rules are. So uh, he seems fairly intelligent, not uh, you know a mindless killer. I mean, he's managed to track somebody to their home. He's built a house. Uh, he's survived somehow. Um, so yeah, the Jason kind of evolves throughout the films, and that's why it's fun. You can kind of pick your own Jason. Do you? Um, yeah. 
which kind of version do you like? Do you like this more hillbilly uh, monster kind of character, or do you like the more zombie machine character later? Yeah, and I wanna I wanna know your answer to this too, because I was thinking about this. What what is is scarier, the more intelligent Jason or the less intelligent, more vulnerable Jason? Um, and ultimately, I feel like the more intelligent Jason is a little more scary. I, I, I feel like maybe a mix is better. You know, like let's not go all one way or the other. But um, I remember being very scared about from part two when I was little, of course. Um, but just knowing that he had this ability to sort of uh, get ahead of the characters in a way, it seems scary. Although in the later movies, he just, it's not that he's intelligent and is ahead of the characters. He's just ahead, ahead of the characters, you know, he just will pop up wherever he wants to be to kill them. You know, there's no um, outsmarting him. You're just going to die pretty much. That's all that's going to happen unless you're fated to live. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. It adds to the realism, I think, when it's a somewhat intelligent Jason. But I also don't think this this Jason is 100 percent there. Like he's he's very distracted by his um, for his mother and from being in the woods for a long time. I'm sure his he's a little bit antisocial and um, not, you know, he's not all there. So uh, I think he's like a he's not like a Hannibal Lecter for sure you know like he's yeah. just a little bit able to get ahead of the characters maybe set traps and stuff like that but mm-hmm. so almost yeah. a kind think? of uh like like a predator you know an animal a bear tiger um yeah i so i will say i think this kind of jason is scarier but i prefer zombie jason that's just what i've always liked that just pure monster indestructible yeah. um almost frankenstein yeah. kind of character but this one, and I'm tr- again, I'm trying to put myself back in the mindset of seeing this movie for the first time. There would be some scary stuff in this film. The first time you see Jason, um, he sits up and he's just got that bag over his head and he's laying in the bed. That's creepy. The whole idea of just this, uh, you know, special, uh, you know, for lack of a more better way to say it, that's how she describes him in the first movie. He, uh, monster who's kind of like feral feral that's a good word for it living in the woods and you're not sure what his deal is uh yeah i think that's much more scary and throughout this whole movie that's that's kind of what he is um so really like get, a, like we we're saying with the urban legend like he has this legendary yeah. status established here and because we all kind of know similar urban legends it it almost makes him that urban legend, you know, it, it almost makes him legendary and mythic, like right, up, right off the bat. This was just almost brilliant. You know, I don't think that they were brilliant when they were writing this, but it just happened to work out really well. I think that all of this, uh, he sort of became almost like an urban legend versus, you know, um, a, a defined killer with an absolute backstory and all this kind of stuff. And to get into the backstory, well, I feel like there's the scene when everybody finally arrives. Um, there's the orientation. Then there's the campfire story with the jump scare at the end where, what is it, Ted pretends to be Jason. Uh, yep. But this scene, watching it again, this really sets up a lot of the conversation. Because let's, let's just be clear, there was no reason to have this movie. Jason was dead at the end of the first movie. Um, <laughs> so they want to make another one, of course, was like, uh, how can we kind of justify this? So 
uh, that's the scene that really sets up and the uh, bar scene later where Jenny's talking about it that oh Jason actually somehow lived and saw his mother get killed so now he's you know this feral creature um, I don't know how have you always interpreted what happened here you just kind of go yeah, whatever. Just roll with it. <laughs> yeah. Did uh, Jason, because uh, there's three theories, I guess. One is that Jason, or two or three, one is that Jason um, never died. That's kind of what this movie implies, that he's just like got scared and ran off into the woods and he lived there until he saw his mother get killed. Um, some people have had the theory that when Jason's mother got killed, that like reanimated him like that act brought him back uh what do you think what what is the story you tell in your head yeah well it's so hard to figure it all out actually you know i mean i the more i think about it the more i'm like well gosh you know who knows how could that have been i think ultimately i'm like don't think about it too much let it be a mystery you know but I think um, I prefer him to have lived somehow because I kind of, in my mind, prefer him to only become zombie Jason when part six starts, you know, and to be basically uh, a nearly indestructible Jason until the end of part four. Um, but, you know, it, I think that the idea that somehow he is reanimated by Pamela's death isn't a bad idea, you know, like that is it works pretty well, you know, with what we've seen, like it could have been that he is a, as a corpse of a little boy jumped out of the water at the end of part one. And then somehow in a supernatural way over the next five years became an older kind of zombie corpse. And the novelization kind of goes with this, you know, it sort of explains that Jason sort of drowned, you know, a long time ago. And then he just sort of found himself awake on the, the side of the shore, kind of after um, uh, the, the events of the first one, because he had time to get Pamela's head before the police came and took it away, I guess, and, and squirrel it away. Um, he just sort of lived off of, um, like when he came back, the camp was closed and he would go into the camp and like raid it for for supplies, but then he would also, I guess, live off stuff in the woods. I don't know exactly what, but, um, you know, during the winter, it surely wouldn't have been that easy, but, um, and that even that his shack in the woods is just an old Camp Crystal Lake cabin because Camp Crystal Lake was obviously abandoned after the first one. Um, and actually that he's, he accidentally started a couple fires in some of those cabins in this intervening five-year time. It's a lot more sense. I mean, you, when you do look at the cabin, it looks ramshackle, but there's stuff in there where you're like, well, you know, it's got like, um, and stuff like that. So I think that maybe it, it makes more sense that it was an existing structure that he's added on to. He's kind of patched up and added stuff to over time, rather than someone who apparently couldn't take care of himself as a youngster is all of a sudden able to live completely on his own in the woods and make buildings and and all kinds of stuff and traps <laughs> and things like that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, but it's also unbelievable that he would be living in the woods from like 57 to, to um, 1980 or whatever. I could also, I could believe either just as easily as the other, they're both fantastic, right? So to me, it's like, just have it remain a question mark. Um, 
speculate endlessly, but but never settle on one, I guess. Yeah, the the sad truth is they just didn't think about it too much. They're just like, uh, we need another one. Jason was like part of the twist at the end, right? At the first one. Okay, bring him back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. who they didn't bring back, though, was Tom Savini. Most of the original uh, filmmakers came back, but didn't Savini go off to do the burning? Wasn't that why he wasn't available? Yeah, so I actually looked back to see like what was the sequence of events here because that was kind of interesting. And you know, and he says that he thought that you know bringing Jason back was stupid, eh? But I think like most people, like one of the bigger reasons would be they just didn't come up with the money that that he wanted. <laughs> you know, um, I think Adrian King sort of says the same thing. I mean, she attributes it, attributes it to a stalker at first why she didn't want to be the full final girl. Then also she said like they didn't have the money. <laughs> and I think Sean Cunningham would be the same way, you know, Victor Miller, all these other people didn't come back. Um, basically he says, so like, here's the sort of sequence. Like he worked on um, Maniac two days after Friday the 13th ended. So he went straight from that to Maniac. Then he went to Midnight, which was a John Russo movie. who's from the whole um, George Romero world people. Then after he finished Maniac, the producers of Friday the 13th Part 1 and 2, Georgetown Productions, were also doing Eyes of a Stranger in Miami. Um, but there were no graphic murders in that movie at the, at the time. And they called him and wanted him to come down and add some. Because it was becoming apparent after the release of Friday the 13th Part 1 that this was the next wave. And this is, you know, we didn't really talk about it. This is when, uh, after Friday the 13th Part 1 came out, Part 2 is really part of a wave of like 10 other slashers that came out in yeah. 1981 that were all competing for that Friday 13th money, you know, because it was a huge hit. Um, you know, it made almost as much money as The Shining, but The Shining cost 40 times as much money as the first Friday 13th. So they were, you know, definitely, uh, they had more competition at this point. And that kind of hurt with getting Savini because a lot of these other people wanted Savini. And so he went from, Maniac to Eyes of a Stranger, added some murders there. He went from Eyes of a Stranger to be an actor on Knight Riders, you know, which was a George Romero movie. Um, and while he was on Knight Riders, the producers of The Burning were trying to get him. Um, and they were visiting him on the set. They were offering him more money and stuff like that. So he felt like these people want me more, you know, basically than the part two people. So he went on and he did The Burning instead of Friday 13 part two. And then after the burning, he did The Prowler, which is another one of these 1981 slashers that came out and competed. Um, and then after that, it was like Creep Show and stuff like that. Um, but there were a ton of these movies, you know, that came out. I think um, I was reading about them. There was, it's interesting because they were just like Friday the 13th part two was trying to figure out how to get that Friday the 13th money again. And their theory was like, let's copy as much as we can of the first one um all these other people were trying to get that money too and they were sitting there saying what what was successful about friday the 13th how are we going to get that money um and a lot of people just thought friday the 13th had a good act but um i think ultimately it's obvious like it was successful on its own with, with word of mouth like success you know um but like just before dawn madman and the burning were all part of this they were all summer camp based, you know? So they were all thinking, let's go in on the summer camp thing. Um, and even Madman and the Burning were really closely tied to that Cropsey legend. Um, 
then, you know, Tom Savini worked on the burning, but burning, but he also worked on the prowler. So they were, they were kind of thinking Tom Savini's the magic ingredient. Um, then there was, I think the others like final exam, happy birthday to me, hell night, graduation day, the dorm that drip blood. Like all of these are like campus slashers. Um, they were just thinking, let's do the same thing, but on a college campus or a high school campus. The only outlier I think was, was My Bloody Valentine, which of course was from Paramount. The same as Friday the 13th. They picked up My Bloody Valentine in the same manner they had done the first Friday the 13th and tried to make money off of it, but it was very different than all the rest. It was, in some ways that makes it one of the best ones because it was dealing with like young adults with jobs and relationships and stuff like that. And it's a little more of an interesting movie, but um, yeah, so it's, they, Friday 13 part two was even hurt by this because when it came out, it had so much competition from all these movies. People have been seeing all of these and, it, and therefore it's kind of like take it was a lot less than like part one and three and four. Um, I think it's more because of the competition, not because it wasn't effective. I don't know. Yeah. Tangent well, there, we, <laughs> <laughs> we get into, yeah. So a lot of this stuff is we have, here at the beginning of the movie, we got the convenience store. We've got Crazy Ralph. Uh, we've got. I always forget like how early Crazy Ralph gets killed. Like I thought for some reason he was in these movies a lot more, but he shows up in the beginning of this one to, um, you know, you're all doomed, and then he gets killed pretty quickly in the first half hour. Um, he's actually the first person at the camp to get killed while he's spying on Paul and Jenny. And then the first person to actually see, well, not person, then the, so crazy Ralph gets snuck up behind. He gets strangled with the, the wire on the throat. Um, the first one to actually see Jason is Muffin the dog. And we'll get more into Muffin uh, as we go on, because there's a lot of questions with Muffin the dog in this movie. Um, so what happens? We get to. Who is it? Uh, Sandra, it's Sandra and Jeff, I think. Yeah. Um, they decide we, well, Sandra really wants to go see uh, Camp Blood. And that's where they find, I guess that's supposed Oops. to be Muffin. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, but then does it Muffin come back later? I mean, that's the big question is did Muffin live or die? Um, Muffin was certainly missing for a long time. And, uh, you know, Terry, it's Terry's dog, Muffin, and Terry couldn't find, was looking for Muffin for a long time. And then Muffin pops up, as we know, at the end of this movie. So it wasn't unless that part of the movie is a dream, which I guess we can talk about when we get there. But this looks like Muffin. The little teeth look like Muffin's little teeth, right? It's the um, same hair. It's right after Muffin finds Jason, yeah. the killer. It's Muffin. I guess, <laughs> yeah, I mean, theoretically, we could say it's Muffin's twin or some other dog is very unlikely like little domestic dogs been running around out here well i guess we'll save that for the end but uh yeah the only way you can interpret this is either that's not muffin or it is muffin and the end is a dream so but we'll we'll save that for the yeah. end um so some of the action starts up let's see here oh they get caught by the police the police is mad yeah. you know things have been kind of quiet for a while we don't want trouble and then the police officer sees Jason running through the woods. He chases him where we get the first shot at the shack. And I love that shack. Just, I don't know. That to me is creepy. Just 
things like that out in the woods, you know, you can find you. Um, we used to behind our house, you know, we, we had uh, behind our house. It was like, I don't know, an acre of woods behind our house and there was a Creek. Okay. And then our next door neighbors, of course, also had the same situation. If you went into the woods in the back of my house, almost at the Creek, and you went just into my next door neighbor's backyard, there was this old dilapidated shack, like very much like the shack, it, more dilapidated, but it was extremely creepy to know that, that shack was back there after having seen this movie, you know, and I, yeah, definitely scary. <laughs> um, definitely resonated with me, this shack out there. Yeah, I watch, in addition to horror, I watch a lot more horror, but I watch a decent amount of like true crime, unsolved mystery kind of stuff. And that's something, you you know, that really fits like, oh, we found something out in the woods. It looks like someone's been living here. Who the hell has been living here and what are, what's their deal? So uh, that's creepy. And you get kind of a hint. He sees something. He's like, oh, my God. But then, of course, Jason gets him in the back of the head with a, a hammer. Um <laughs> then what happens next we go to yeah. the a couple of things that um that actor i think it was really funny because the actor said that um he got kind of annoyed because they had to keep hitting him in the head with this rubber <laughs> hammer <laughs> it's like it hurts after a while right um but uh in the novelization like i was saying when they were trespassing uh it actually says there's some old dilapidated cabins there because in this in this movie version there's nothing it's just woods at this point and it's supposed to be that camp crystal lake is around the lake from where they're at this counselor training center i'm not sure that that's really explained fully but it's supposed to be all the way around the lake so i don't know how big the lake is in this version so to speak um the in reality it's a place called north spectacle pond Connecticut um so it's that big <laughs> but uh yeah and interestingly the cast stayed in cabins at a camp that was a mile around the lake from the counselor training center so they would be walking back and forth essentially to Camp Crystal Lake at night as they were you know coming back and forth from working awesome nice nice uh tidbits there <laughs> Uh, then we get, so after that, it, it's nighttime now. And uh, who is it? Is it um, Paul? Paul, he's the, the one who's in charge, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Paul's like, okay, everybody, <laughs> why don't you all go out and get drunk, basically? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what he says, but that's basically what yeah. he says. Um, mm -hmm. And half the cast just leaves the movie at this point and never really comes back, which... yeah. Kind of they were just sort of there before right like it's like I, I always wonder like why do we have so many people that we have to get rid of like why yeah. don't we just have this many people but I think it must have been that once they decided that it's a counselor training center they must have decided that they wanted like a few people to be running it and then so that's three people and then after you have a few people running it you have to have more than like five or six people going to the, to the yeah. training center you know so maybe it was just a matter of like what's believable although you, you can tell they don't worry that much about it <laughs> that much um but yeah it's odd and it's odd like uh why wouldn't everybody go and i think they do explain that jeff and sandra are punished for trespassing so that's why they're staying and then Terry wants to stay because Muffin's missing. So it's nice that they've explained some of this. And then Scott wants to stay because Terry's staying. Uh, and he wants Terry so bad. 
And then Mark is staying because he says that drunks are not fun in wheelchairs or something Yeah, it's like kind of sad. I, yeah, he's like, no one uh, wants to have a drunk in a wheelchair around. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's just true, but, you know, um, it's what he says. And then obviously Vicky is just like, you know, this is like day two and Vicky is basically sitting top of them. So that's why they're all staying. And then everybody else goes. Um, Ted and like basically the people running the camp go away <laughs> and drink with these other kids. And then there's just a you know six people staying behind yeah so they all go off to the bar and we kind of forget about them for a while and we stick with the the main four who are still left so uh we talked about this last time i remember as a you know you know about 13 years old part of the appeal of these movies was the uh unnecessary nudity right and you get some here first person to be nude is terry who is well first of all it's already established uh Terry is there's that scene where it's just like following her short shorts butt and then Scott shoots her with a rock or something in a slingshot and then winks at her so yeah Scott's kind of a creepy guy isn't he Um, (laughs) but anyways Terry's kind of weird too because late at night while she's looking for a dog she decides I think I'll go skinny dipping (laughs) and the novelization uh, it, it sort of explains that maybe she knows that Scott is following her and she's kind of like putting on a little show for Scott and kind of enticing him in some way and then she's surprised and upset that he doesn't come out there and that's when she comes out kind of quickly because she's just like dip get in <laughs> i got in now i'm going home um it's like that's a lot of work and this scene is also funny because it's so lit you know every time i watch it i'm like where's all this light coming from? Right. you know it's like that definitely they want to make sure we see everything right um and the novelization even goes so far as to say there's a spotlight on the boathouse. <laughs> That's why everything is lit right here. Um, yeah, it's really funny uh, seeing uh, all of this whole sequence with the uh, skinny dipping and the trap to me makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but it's really, um, she said actually that she had to do this like five times and that the water was freezing. And then every time she got out, they would like dry her off with like this airplane engine that would dry her off in like 30 seconds flat so that she could go right back in there and do it. Um, But she's the only nudity. You do see some bras and some panties, I guess. And I think it's kind of a lot of people, I think, would say that the guys in this one are are some of the most attractive guys. Like, I think almost every guy but Crazy Ralph is like pretty (laughs) studly dude, you know, even Stu, even Ted, you know, is, is, uh, skinny and ripped you know so um but and you know we all know about tom mcbride who's who's gay in real life and ended up dying of aids in like 95 but i'm also pretty sure that russell todd who plays scott has a male partner now i don't know what his his situation was at the time of the filming but um i think there's more than one gay cast member to this film um and i don't know if you've ever seen the documentary about um life and death on the a-list but it's on youtube right now um and i watched it for the first time like this week and it's really sad but um you know, talk about friday the 13th at all but you do get full frontal tom mcbride <laughs> okay um, so, so it's a sad it's a very sad movie because it's him dying you know well whatever you're into uh <laughs> that these movies have some eye candy for you I yeah guess. basically yeah um, and he said yeah, the cast kind of joked that they spent a lot of time, a lot of, they were really concerned about the nudity, you know, that they were spending a lot of time on it. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, so what? Oh, yeah. So she stays nude for longer than necessary because uh, Scott steals her clothes. Again, very, uh, very un-PC, this character. If it was nowadays, if this movie came out now, he'd have to get the worst kill. But yeah. uh, and he's like running away with her clothes and she has to chase him. And then, of course, the moment we've already mentioned a few times, he steps into like a Rambo style trap where you step into the rope and it whips you up, hanging you upside down. <laughs> and I think at that moment they blame Paul, like, damn it, Paul's your survival bullshit or something like that. But yeah, I think that's, that the only, that's the only thing that really explains it is to think that this was something as part of the training that. But I don't know what kind of training would involve setting traps for people, you know, um, <laughs> how to keep your kids from leaving camp, like set all these traps or something. And that also seemed to be like the kind of trap that like you don't set by stepping in it. Like you, you would go there and then someone would pull a rope or something and that would get your leg or whatever. Um, so I'm also surprised, like when it happens that they're not more surprised, I guess they, maybe they're just assuming it's his wilderness bullshit. It's not really his wilderness bullshit. But then we're, we're wondering, like, why, how did, did Jason set this trap thinking that maybe someone will get into it? And then was he just waiting right there? Because it's very soon after that he comes up and cuts Scott's throat. And then Scott just kind of, like, dies. Like, he doesn't even kind of struggle or anything. He's just like, oh, okay, well, I'm dying now. You know, that seemed kind of bad to me that he did it. Uh, uh, you know, have a little more of a struggle for for, or anything at that point and there's also a classic goof there if you pay attention yeah. he gets his throat slit but it's the wrong side of the machete <laughs> yeah. yeah and i actually think when um when mark is killed it's the wrong side of the machete when you see him falling backwards uh, maybe someone on this film didn't know what side of the machete was the blade the sharp part <laughs> um but it's funny the guy who plays scott and john caglione jr who was like an, an the assistant for Carl Fullerton, the makeup effects guy. Um, they were both working on this scene together and they were actually like practically best friends who went to high school together and made, um, you know, little movies with each other, hoping one day to be, you know, basically doing what they were doing at this moment. So that's pretty cool for them. And it's not too clear to me what happens to Terry. I mean, I don't even remember. I just watched the movie and I don't remember what happens to Terry. Does she get jumped? While she comes to check on Scott, I know she comes so, up. Yeah, she sort of, you know, she, well, she goes and finds this knife and she comes back and she realizes that he's dead. But then she just sort of like screams and she goes up to the camera. And she's like, ah, you know, and it kind of black blanks out. And we're not sure what happens to her until way later when we see her body in yeah. the Jason's altar area. Um, in the novelization, it only describes that like her screams are drowned out by the music in the main house because I think as you notice with these early kills they're all very silent and they're all dealing with like getting people's throats quickly you know like crazy Ralph's throat's cut so he can't scream Scott's throat's cut so he can't scream has anyone else died yet um so but, but anyway yeah, the, the cop yeah but that's way way away so that yeah. means they wouldn't be alerted because there's all this time you know they got to get these kills in early but they also can't alert everyone the killings happening so they can get to that big end sequence where you kill a bunch of people <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. it's fun. and it's fun that this this movie is actually a two-night movie you know the first one was all one day but this one once crazy ralph's killed that's the end of the first day and then they're running that little run they do is the 
beginning of the second day. This is going into the, we're in the second day now, or second night at this point. So what do we have here? So now we've got our big main kills to happen. There's a little bit of a bar scene where um, uh, she's talking about, you know, her theory about Jason and telling us what, what we're supposed to believe that Jason lived and saw his mom and all that. But basically we get uh, what I always like in these movies. It's just everybody, you know, partying and having fun. Um, Jeff, their arm wrestling and stuff like that. Jeff and Sandra go upstairs pretty quickly, leaving just Mark and Vicky alone. And I have to say, I really like Mark and Vicky. I wish they had had more time or maybe even they survived to the end. Just their chemistry actually kind of works, I think, yeah. you know? Yeah, sure. Uh, I like how Vicky, Vicky is not, she's not the, you know, the slutty character, but she still comes on to him pretty clearly, you know? Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's right on, all those she's on it. <laughs> she yeah was really on it like, literally i think that she was i mean there's a lot of like thoughts about is she going after him because he's kind of safe and like um you know there, there's just some talk in the back you know I've, I've heard about her being like what are her motivations here and obviously they're kind of pure but also like i think she's we can kind of assume that she seems kind of virginal and maybe this she's she wants a nice guy or what she perceives as a safe guy um, for her next encounter with a dude. But, um, you know, she, she talks about she hated the underwear she had to wear, which is ugly. Um, I don't know what, who thought that color was nice. I guess the satin <laughs> material is supposed to be nice or something, but that's, who would want anyone in the underwear? But, um, yeah, I like them, too, as a couple. And you, you would think that they wouldn't work because, like, in real life, he's gay, but obviously it doesn't matter. They're actors, but, um, you know, she says she had a crush on him in real life because she didn't know that he was gay. So, um, although some of the other cast say that they knew, and that it just wasn't a big, big discussion. Um, but yeah, like I've always liked Mark. <laughs> I think a lot of gay guys like Mark. Um, and they, it's just cause he's hot and, um, not that Scott isn't hot, but Mark seems super friendly and nice. And I think they both seem super friendly and nice, Mark and Vicky, and you just sort of like them. And not that you don't like the others, but, you know, Harry's obviously there just to show her boobs. And Scott's there just to be a pest. And Ted's there to be a joker. And Jeff and Sandra are there so they can have sex with each other. And that's, that's pretty much it. I feel like our access point, probably Mark and Vicky, you know. Um, Mark's, you know, Vicky goes off to get something but she's gone like forever i don't know what she's thinking like if i was about to get it with mark i'd be like let's go right now like you can go with me or something like i'll wheel you down to where we need to be and we'll do it but she's stupid enough to go off for like a half hour it seems right. like to find something um you know they smoke a joint it's kind of funny um and then we learn that mark's in a wheelchair because of a motorcycle accident but he thinks somehow he's going to be cured one day which you know, I guess he's not going to ever walk again, as we know. Um, and actually, the wheelchair kill is one of the three things that the the kind of main Boston producers wanted in the movie. They wanted um, the double sex impalement thing that we're going to get soon. They wanted this wheelchair kill, someone in a wheelchair to be killed. And then they wanted um, that whole Jenny rat peeing thing that we'll talk about, I'm sure soon. <laughs> Some weirdly specific things to request, but okay. <laughs> really weird and uh they collab they actually this bill scuderi was like the main one i think that was involved he collaborated with ron kurz on the script and he's ron kurz says he was like a true collaborator 
and he was definitely had like an exploitation mindset, this guy. And I think he, he sort of thought about what, what the audience would expect when they saw a person in a wheelchair in a slasher movie and that they would just start immediately anticipating <laughs> what's going to happen to this person. Um, and he gets one of the most, I think most people think this is like the, one of the better kills. Like it's, you know, the, the double sex impalement was clearly supposed to be one of the biggest ones, but this one, I think everyone remembers the machete going into his head. And it is weird, kind of weird how he's just like looking around and he doesn't see this machete like come right next to him. Like you didn't see the person that was standing yeah. right there. Um, but this machete comes in and we see it, we see the back of him and the machete hits and it looks very realistic because it really is hitting his head is hitting like a catcher's mitt. And this is a balsa wood machete hitting, but we're just seeing it from the back. And then it cuts to the front where the machete's already in his face and he starts falling backwards. And then we cut back to behind him watching that wheelchair tumble down steps. Um, it was super effective, <laughs> you know? Every time you see it, you're like, wow, that worked pretty well. <laughs> Yeah, I had in my notes that this is one of the more most uh, most famous kills, I think, in the series, because he doesn't just get killed. You know, he gets killed and then he like goes flying down the stairs for <laughs> several flights of stairs. So almost extra. Yeah. It's almost like, did we have to like extra go after this guy? Like, oh. yeah, it's, it's almost brutal. Yeah, but it's 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 fun. I think people like it. And, you know, I I'm still amazed when i watched the wheelchair fall down the steps with how they did that that's kind of i don't think it's a dummy i think there's a person in the wheelchair but um i don't know exactly how they would do it you know but i'm not a movie magician either yeah pretty good stunt work there um so yeah as you said vicky has decided to i guess the idea was freshen up like she goes and changes her clothes and combs her hair and everything it's also that weird moment where she sprays perfume down her panties, which is kind of gross. Yeah. That's yeah. Gross. That's, uh, <laughs> oh, no, I remember yeah. as a kid, 13, watching that, like, do women, do women do that? And now as an older man, I'm pretty sure they don't. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't uh, think you want to do that. You know, yeah, you that's cloud of I... <laughs> artificial odor down there. I don't know. Yeah. It's not a good plan. <laughs> yeah. So not those underwear so breathe either. It's just, yeah. Yeah. And she has this look on her face like she's doing something naughty. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. It's just she weird. has to go to her car to get her hairbrush. What is her what are her hairbrush doing? Like stuck in between her seats. It's like this. It's like this whole saga to get this hairbrush. You <laughs> know, she uses it at the after she gets it. I don't know. Yeah. I obviously just wanted to get rid of her for this kill and then for her to come back and be looking for Mark. So yeah, so while she's gone, right, she just goes off. While she's gone, though, that's when we get the impalement scene with Jeff and Sandra in bed together, and they, uh, yeah, what is it like a fishing spear? Um, goes the spear that that he had from the uh, campfire scene. That's right. Ed yeah, came in with the mask. It's like almost like a prop spear, I guess, but it's real. I mean, it's obviously a real spear. I don't know. Maybe it is a fishing yeah. spear. Because he got it through two people and a bed. <laughs> um, yeah. Why Why else would they have a spear there? Unless it was for something like that. But, yeah. So <laughs> Vicky comes to that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, some, some of the stuff, it's just, it's almost humorous that it's there, you know. Um, in part three, we get, we get more of that. But uh, anyways, Vicky comes back and she 
Uh, Wait, we got to talk about this kill, this double impalement. I mean, okay, that's, go, go. What, give me your that's interesting. I think <laughs> it's it's interesting that people often comment on this being similar to a kill in Bay of Blood, right? Which is the Mario Baba movie, um, where there's also people camping around a lake and being killed one by one. And so there is a double impalement like this, and and they say that they weren't that this isn't where it came from, but we know that the producer wanted it in there theoretically, and. Phil Scuderi was one of the heads of Hallmark Releasing, who released Bay of Blood as Twitch of the Death Nerve in like 1972. And then they re-released it in 1977 as Last House on the Left Part Two, which remember all these people were involved in Last House on the Left originally. So it is interesting. You know, even Carl Fulton says this is going to be an effect we haven't seen before, but I think we did see it before. Some people saw it before, like nine years before. But I guess they did it a little bit different and they hope for it to have more to it. And when you see the uncut footage, you can see it looks a little more brutal and everything. Um, but it ended up kind of not coming off that brutal. Um, though in the book, it describes how um, Sandra is sort of trapped underneath um, Jeff and kind of struggling and, and wriggling around as she chokes on her own blood trying to get out of the situation. <laughs> I need to know about her suffering, but <laughs> yeah, I feel like the gore in this one isn't that intense, or at least as much as I remember. And some of that, of course, is even at this point there was stuff being edited out by the MPAA. Yeah. But uh, yeah, actually, I don't think I have seen a lot of the uh, the missing footage. Uh, I have. These I have back home. I have that one box set they did of the those first what was it eight films, and then I have the the Blu-rays they re-released the special editions. Oh, wow, I guess almost fifteen years now, but uh, I yeah. don't have the most recent releases. So yeah, this was just the box set that Screen Factory did like mm. two years ago, and they found the a VHS that Carl Fullerton had just so he could preserve his his work that he did. And uh, there's um, a story of like Greg Nicotero saying that he saw it when he went to work on Day of the Dead. He was shown this VHS. And, uh, you know, for a long time, we've been waiting on this footage to return. We knew the MPAA cut out like a minute from this movie. Um, and they had gotten stricter. Like they, they went after My Bloody Valentine, which came out like in February 81. This came out in May 81. So they didn't know at first like what was going to happen. But I think as they started getting into the, the post-production they were seeing that they were going to be, he had to send it to the MPAA 10 times wow. over and over to get the R rating, which they had to have, like just, it was contractual kind of thing with Paramount, like it was gonna have to be an R. Um, so yeah, they, I mean, the, the, the gore has suffered. There is a YouTube video that cuts in the gore with the movie a little bit, and I'll send that to you so you can just see what it looks like but it's it's not you know many seconds but it really when you when you add it up on the whole movie it's a much more you know gory experience and i'm like you like you kind of imagine it to be gory or at least you think back that it was gorier but when you sort of watch critically or kind of remove from it you realize it's not that much gore um but i feel like you kind of miss it like this probably would have been even more of a success if that um core had been in there yeah <laughs> you know i think when everyone went to these 1981 horror movies expecting some big gore you know these slashers they didn't get it and that contributed to their your the, the appearance that they were not successful yeah well i got the uh 
the Halloween release box set that Screen Factory did. I didn't get the Friday the 13th box set because I was already over here in Taiwan and I'm trying to, you know, I have so much stuff that's back in the yeah. United States. And I love collecting stuff, of course, just like you do. But living here, I'm trying to be a little more minimalist with having my stuff. But uh, yeah. yeah, if you yeah, folks don't know the story about the MPAA and um, their, their sort of censorship crusade look look into all that i'm sure anyone who knows about friday the 13th knows about all that though so um, it's interesting too about the mpaa is that they you know i'll sort of get in the sense reading about this is that they kind of even go after intensity like how scary it is you yeah. you often think of them just being about gore, but i think that usually when they're telling the filmmakers what to change they're saying you know, make it less intense make it less you know they're not really really being that specific you know because they're supposedly not censors um so that ultimately the filmmakers i think in a lot of cases are are sort of toning down the overall scariness of their movies just to appease right. the mpa it's not just the gore that they're coming down it's weird and it seems like um you know at that time all these movies you'd have just unnecessarily nudity boobs and stuff like that but they would really get upset over the gore whereas nowadays you you can have really really gory films but nudity is much more frowned upon yeah Um, and i think one of the reasons is that people were in the 80s that's they had to go out of their way a little bit to see nudity like you could definitely get porno mags and stuff like that and hide them away in your house and all these kind of things but you know it was kind of a nice bonus i think to go to the movies and see a little tna right um at least for some people. <laughs> and then, you know, there would be porn in theaters back then, right? But once VHS and slowly came in, it did change a little bit. We would see it more on the home video stuff, more on the Cinemax, more on that kind of stuff. Um, but nowadays, like, I think people are just expect, like, you could just look at that at home on your computer, right. <laughs> you know, like, you don't <laughs> have it in the movie. Yeah. Um, for the most part. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, accusations of misogyny or whatever. Um, People get more upset about stuff like, oh, this is exploiting women. But the violence and things, they don't care about as much. Yeah. And mostly it's the men that are killed on screen in these movies. Um, Even though in these movies, they also would be against the violence against women, right? They would say these movies are violent against women. But usually it's the the men that are getting the graphic deaths. you know, with the, the nudity, Jason Goes to Hell, I think, uh, did that the best. They just had boys and girls <laughs> being nude. It's like, let's just be equal opportunity exploiters here and exploit everyone instead of keeping it to just the men or the women. Which I think ultimately is really the best way to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just keep it even, whatever. Um, it's, um, yeah, I think the deaths are fairly uh, not biased in terms of gender in this movie. It's almost 50-50, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And mostly it's couples, you know. I mean, almost everybody in the movie is some kind of couple or, or want to be couple, you know. That obviously helps with the having sex in the movie, you know. Because Jenny has sex too. We don't really see it, but that's, you know, when Crazy Ralph gets killed, theoretically they have sex and she wakes up and sees that lytic on, on the mirror. Um, so she's not a virgin either. So I think the accusations that these movies are um, already saying that uh, you have to stay virgin or you're going to get killed. It's just not, it's not true for Friday 13th part two, you know? 
yeah, it never was, uh, really. I mean, that whole thing, ugh, not to get off too awful much on this whole tired conversation. I was a, you know, I was a film student for a while and I got so sick of this stuff. So it still kind of irritates me. Um, but really a lot of it goes back to people say John Carpenter, you know, that's where it started with Halloween. And if you, John Carpenter was a very much like a hippie, liberal leftist kind of guy. Uh, and it was just about being distracted, right? Um, and vulnerability. You're vulner you're distracted and you're vulnerable. So that makes it scarier. Uh, and plus uh, in real life, serial killers have targeted um like lovers lanes type areas. So it's you know kind of realistic. I think they were uh, kind of playing too with like who is the final girl. So maybe you you didn't know Adrian King was gonna die, but then once she dies, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, who's gonna be the survivor of this movie? And I think it seems to be kind of obvious at first that it's Jenny you know, but then Jenny has sex. So then you're thinking if you are buying into this whole thing and like the filmmakers are knowing about it, then you might be thinking, well, maybe Jenny's not the final girl. Maybe it's Vicky. Vicky's this really super nice person over here. Maybe she's going to live and she hasn't had, she's trying to have sex, but she hasn't had sex yet. So there might be some people thinking like, don't have sex, <laughs> you know, whatever you do, don't have sex, man. Um, and so maybe it's just one of those ways that the, the movie's trying to play with our expectations a little bit by mixing up who's having sex and who isn't having sex. But we're still only like halfway through the movie. So uh, oh, we got go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's see here. Oh, yeah. So after Jeff and Sandra get stabbed, Vicky comes back. Yeah. So she finds, she can't, she finds, goes up to their room trying to find them. She finds the sheets covered in blood. And when she pulls back the sheets, that's when you get the first look at Jason with the mask over his head. Now, what I've always uh, heard, and I have the movie, but I can't believe I still haven't watched it. This is pretty much a direct steal from the town that dreaded sundown. Do you have, you probably have more to add on that. Yeah, it's very much a, um, a uh, town that dreaded sundown look the bag head and even the outfit, I think, um, are very similar. You know, actually when it came out, they were worried that it was gonna be too close to the Elephant Man, which had just recently come out, it was a big movie. And he had a bag over his head for some of the movie with like an eye hole. Um, so they were kind of afraid. They didn't know how people would react. They were kind of afraid audiences might laugh at Jason and think of the Elephant Man when they saw him. But obviously that didn't happen. They're very different movies i mean i think when you're watching this you're thinking of the art artsy elephant man movie um but yeah it's uh i don't know they they say that the sack was the costume designer's idea and that it was just theoretically something that jason would have available and close by now i don't really know we know that jason's disfigured but if he's living alone in the woods like why is he wearing a sack on his head is it just to go into town like he didn't maybe just when he goes around people he puts a sack on his head um or maybe he just feels comfortable the novelization kind of tries to say that he looks disgusting after spending all this time under the water and that he couldn't even look at it so he put a sack over his head uh, it was hard for them to use like they had to tape the inside of the mask so that the, the eye hole would stay where the eye was so the person yeah. could see where they were going and that it was just kind of a pain i think and then it looked too much like elephant man and then down the dreaded sundown probably people saw the similarity at some point and um so that 
that's kind of, I think, some of the reasons we don't see it again. But yeah, Sackhead Jason. I don't know. I kind of like it, but then I also kind of think better <laughs> yeah i mean the hockey mask that's what you think of when you think of jason but for what this film is doing i think it works well and um yeah i just see it as jason was as a kid he was bullied so much because he looked different right um so at this point in the movie uh at this point when he's going to be around people he covers his face maybe he feels safe like that and of course that becomes a big part of his character having to have his face covered so um but yeah, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. I still haven't seen that when I have it, so I'll have to watch it soon and um, give an update on that. But I remember hearing about the, that because of this movie. And I think for a long, long time, you couldn't find that movie. Um, there wasn't really any home releases. And then they finally have put a couple out. But um, yeah, anything to say about that movie since it tends to come up when we discuss this one? Yeah, I really like that movie. I actually read a book about the murders that these Texarkana murders that um, that it's about because it's kind of like a fictional dramatization of real serial killer murders from from back in the day um, and it came out in like 76 I think so it was it was not that long before this movie was filmed but I don't know how wide of a release it got um, that bag head thing I, I don't recall I think that was just for that movie. That wasn't something from the True Life Murders, but it may have been. I'm not, not an expert. There was also a movie done not too long ago about it that I didn't see, but I, I need to. Um, well, there's the remake, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which right. I haven't seen. And I think it was supposed to be maybe a little more towards the true crime aspect. I'm not really sure. I haven't seen it, but, um, but the first movie is definitely worth watching. I enjoyed it a lot. Great. Just know it's more kind of like a true crime thing. They're kind of like a narrator and stuff like that. Yeah, it's pretty different than this kind of film. So, all right, we're, we're, we got, uh, uh, we cut briefly to Ginny and Paul are coming back from the bar. As we've already said, everyone else just stays and never comes back to the film again, yep. which is very lucky for them, uh, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Ted, the- Ted lives. Ted basically yeah. lives. And the novelization, he actually hooks up with the waitress and goes home with her. <laughs> All right. Good for Ted. Uh, <laughs> so every one of these movies has a character like Ted, the joke, the jokester, you know. But And the first in um, the first movie is Ned. Ned, Ted. <laughs> yeah. And then what's it? Shelly, Ned, Ted and Shelly right. is in the mm-hmm. next one. Uh, <laughs> I met, Well, I'll save that story for when we get to part three of uh, meeting Shelly. But um <laughs> tune in next time so they get back from the bar um and they can't find anyone but they do find the blood-stained bed and that's where um um jason attacks paul in the dark and i remember being even as a kid being frustrated at this because jenny's just sitting there being scared like go help <laughs> i mean yeah. if, if you've ever been in like really, really tense situations, you, you can freeze. That does happen. So it's kind of understandable. Later, she becomes more useful after this. But um, we're basically on to the, the final chase now, aren't we? Yeah, well, I love, I've always thought it was really scary, that sequence where he's just in the dark of that room. I think everyone's walked into a dark room and thought, somebody in here, you know? Yeah. I love how she's like, there's someone in this fucking room. <laughs> That is probably the creepiest part of the whole movie when she's like, there's someone in the room. There's someone in here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, <exactly. laughs> 
definitely scared me as a kid. I mean, that's one of the, this whole sequence here where she's running through this house to get away from Jason is, is what I remember from, as a kid seeing and being so scared by. So this, like the whole final third of the movie almost, definitely the final act is sort of like her running from Jason. So, uh, so first she goes to the car. We have another cliche here that the car won't start. But to be fair, it has been established throughout the whole movie that the car is having trouble. Continually, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, although it is kind of funny that they just, they had just driven it and like a few minutes ago it was working fine but it won't start so uh we can't drive away um then she goes to first she makes it to well there's some good stuff in the the cabin right where she's uh she hides in the bathroom and then he comes into the bathroom window and she takes off yeah and she like comes out of a window and then she's run up to to the the yellow car which is vicky's car and um not being able to get into it and like kind of get in front of that while he runs by and then I think this is where um, she goes and hides under the bed of maybe her cabin. Um, and Jason's looking in there and is theoretically is going to see her, but then a rat goes by and we see some pee come out, which Amy Steele says was Coca-Cola. But there's different, you know, theories about what's going on. Um, Steve Miner says the rat pee. The, in the novelization, the rat scares Jenny and she pees. It makes way more sense, to be honest, if it's the rat that pees. Although it is kind of funny that Jason then gets on a chair and waits for him to get <laughs> out front of the bed instead of just trying to kill her. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny. And then we see the previous, her try to use that previously established chainsaw that she was using, put up in her room. Um, which this movie will establish all the weapons beforehand, which is fun, but it it doesn't like the first one. It doesn't show them being used all, all, all the time in reality before they're used. But you know, so it, a- it 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 doesn't make sense for Jenny to be scared by the rat. She's being chased by Jason. If she was going to pee her pants, she's peed them already. You know, yeah, she's yeah, done with peeing her pants at this point. The rat's not going to do it. Yeah, that scene was weird. As a kid, I interpreted it when I first saw it as, oh, the rat comes, the rat pees. But that's a lot of pee for a rat, first of all. And then when it cuts back, you know, the rat was in front of her face. So the only way you can really interpret it is that she was peeing. But yeah, it's just a weird I mean. moment. Uh, and then Jason sees it. And like you said, instead of just going after her, he gets up on the chair and then he falls off the chair. <laughs> There's some slapsticky moments with Jason in this movie, yeah. right? But it's sort of, it's kind of nice that he's affected by reality, just everybody else. It sort of almost makes it more real that he's got some, he's fallible. He's not entirely perfect. I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> he, so it he makes it more believable she's getting away, I guess, in the first place. Because gosh, she's doing pretty well. You know, everyone else dies like this and she's, she's really making a go of it. Well, it is his first killing spree, right? You know, he's yeah, yeah. He like did pretty well, though. You know, stalking and popping up every which way for these other people. Um, but yeah, because he was always just at the right place at the right time to kill everybody else. It seems like. Um, yeah, but now, kind of like Michael Myers, when it's time for the final kill, we suddenly get a little loopy, a little tired. Yeah. But yeah, he he just falls down, and she comes after him with a chainsaw. Um, and then for some reason, when he falls down, instead of like killing him with a chainsaw, she puts the chainsaw down, picks up a chair and goes professional wrestling on him. <laughs> yeah, I um, don't know exactly what she was thinking. Um, and this yeah, is, I feel like if when Jason loses the element of surprise, then he's 
then it's really hard for him. Like he really depends on that element of surprise. And like, you know. Yeah. Um, which makes me think of one of my favorite scenes in part eight with boxing, but we've, we've got a long way to go before we get there. Um, so this is one part that always frustrates everybody. I know it frustrates me. Make sure the killer is dead, right? Um, and it's not like, oh, someone attacked you uh, or someone tried to mug you or something. This guy has, is a maniac who has killed multiple of your friends. Finish him off, you know? <laughs> Instead, the, the chair to the back of the head or to the back, probably not going to kill him. <laughs> so. Yeah. I guess in that moment, she she didn't know how effective the chair would be. So maybe she was just like, get him with the chair and then run as fast as possible to get away from this person. Yeah. She's probably going to get up right away. but Or her um, goal is to just, just get away. Um, you know, same. But anyway, so uh, the movie would be over pretty quickly. If It would be funny, though, if she just got the chainsaw and cut him to pieces. And that's the end of the second movie. <laughs> um <laughs> But what is instead she takes off riding into the woods and she gets to she finds the shack pretty quickly, right? Is supposedly a mile around or on the other side of the lake. It's it's kind of funny how she just sort of runs and runs into this shack. You know, it's kind of fortuitous, but um, you try to figure out the geography when you're thinking about you know where the the uh, the cop would had driven away, and sort of ran into the woods, and we see that that rock. There's like a creek with a little rock in it as he gets to the shack. And that's supposed to let us know as Ginny's getting close to the shack. But once we see that rock again, we're like, oh, she's going to run into that shack. But it is kind of fortunate that she heads in that direction. Yeah. And it's kind of strange that if you see a a scary shack like this in the woods, like, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I would be like, I'm going in there. You know, that's that's going to be safe for me. I think I would just be like, I'll open the door, make it look like I went in, yeah. just keep going somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, I think at that point you just run for like a few hours, you know, <laughs> but yeah, keep uh, running. <laughs> oh, we skipped stop. the part. I was talking about slapstick stuff. She with the chair and him falling off the chair and she kicks him in the balls <laughs> at one point. Well, that's yeah, on the way out. Apparently that was um a mistake like she didn't mean to in the filming like maybe she got him a little bit too more than she should <laughs> like the oh. timing was a little bit off she kind of see him like stumble back in the- yeah it's one of the few times where you hear noises from him you know you're like oh get yeah. a little grunt yeah um but now so we've gone into the shed and for the first time uh, well, you see Jason coming in the background. And I think that's one thing that works really well about the bag and later the mask is, of course, we're running through the woods a lot. It's often dark, uh, but the white whiteness around the head makes him a lot easier to see, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so you see him coming. And I guess um, we see what scared the cop, freaked him out so much earlier in the movie before he got the hammer to the head. And I'll let you take it, man. You want to tell us about the... Uh, Kind of a unique ending here, or or yeah. what happens in the shack? Tell us about that. There's well, still in the shack. After. I mean, we we get into the shack and we, um, I guess, uh, we see she goes in and she she finds the um the altar, the altar to Jason's mother, and in there you can see like Terry from before. You can see the sheriff, and then you can see like Alice's decomposing corpse, um, and. Let's see if I can get the sequence right. Um, she comes in and Jason attacks, but um, 
Paul, I can't remember if Paul comes in first before she. Well, comes first in there's the, the uh, where she imitates his mother. That happens first. Right, right. So she imitates the mother. This is where we see Betsy Palmer again. Yeah. And this is all newly shot stuff, but she was in LA at the time. And so um, it's actually Wes Craven that shot these little insert shots. She mm-hmm. went in, and, and that's what. I guess Steve Miners told some people on this most recent box set that he had shot those because he was unavailable. But she says a few more lines, and this apparently confuses Jason enough that um, she gets the opportunity to sort of get the get the upper hand, you know. And you know, it's he was the the actor was told to have some kind of recognition that this is your mother, so he does this little head tilt that's a little bit like Halloween, where he looks at the dead body, you know. Um, and then she goes to sort of get him and he kind of blocks the blow with a, with a, um, a pickaxe, I think if I'm getting it right. Um, and this is actually when she in reality sliced um, the actor's finger and he had to go to the, the hospital, um, get stitches and stuff like that. But then Paul shows up and kind of saves the day because she's, she's in this, this tussle with Jason right there at the mm-hmm. end and, and he's kind of coming back and her upper hand didn't quite as much as it needed to yeah um, and then i guess paul had been running close behind and hearing her screams because otherwise it's kind of a stretch that he just pops up with jason shack yeah it's kind of, of surprising that he survived but i guess you know all we see is them get into a fight we don't see him get any lethal blows or anything and then jason goes after her pretty quickly but yeah. i want to talk a little bit more about this scene because i've it's one that's always stuck with me where she realizes pretty quickly what's going on like oh, okay jason is obsessed with his mother obviously so she even like puts on her vest and yeah, her uh, sweater yeah her sweater yeah. from the first one sweater that's right and pretends to be her and yeah. i like it because it's been established throughout the movie it's come up two or three times that she's a psychologist or studying psychology so she's psychologist. Like a, yeah. yeah child psychologist and so the fact that that was set up and then she uses it here and it really works and talk about being resourceful in the final girl, you know, that it doesn't get much more resourceful than that. Like to put this whole plan yeah. together so quickly. And yeah, even quickly. when she, she holds her nerve too. even when Jason at first goes, no, I'm not listening to you. She yells at him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's mommy. And it's only when she kind of like moves to go to stab him that he sees his mother's head and goes, wait a second, you know, he figures yeah. it out. So I've always liked, that twist here of course it doesn't finally work because jason sees his mom and then they fight and then paul comes in that's where you said he comes back in um, right, um pamela had been the first one that we see in the fridge you know we see that one in the fridge that pamela head was made by stan winston who's a friend of steve miners um and he you know, like I said, Betsy Palmer came in to do the dialogue in L.A. Well, she also went into Stan Winston's shop in L.A. to do this mold because she wasn't going to go back to the East Coast for this little shoot or whatever. Um, and so um, this head is kind of like a had to be different because they actually were going to have someone. This is the Barry Lassie. When we talk about this, they're actually going to have someone up in it, you know, this and, and opening their eyes and smiling at the very end of the the scene but that's that's why this head looks so different than the one we see in the fridge mm-hmm. 
So, but Ginny, um, Paul comes in like, okay, so I was just criticizing Ginny before about kind of freezing when Paul was fighting Jason. This time she doesn't freeze. She gets a machete and gives a real deep, painful looking blow into the shoulder, like right where the shoulder meets the neck and uh, pretty much takes him out, at least for now. Yeah, he's down for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Never completely down, though. Um, And it looks painful. Yeah. So then they make it. And here's where, you know, the ending we talk about gets kind of confusing. They make it back to the cabin, but they hear a noise at the door. So they're like bracing themselves for another battle. And when they open the door, it's Muffin. (laughs) It's Muffin, right? It's who else could it be? It's Muffin. Muffin got hungry finally. And. I guess didn't die out there in the woods. I except that was was definitely a dream. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, this is a new dog. Uh, Yeah, Uh, you know, I think that one of the fun things about this movie is you can watch it one time and you can think, okay, the rat pees this time and muffin, and then the next time you watch it, you can say, no, it was actually uh, Jenny that peed and muffin died. You know, you can. You could have different interpretations every yeah. time, practically. Well, so again, like at the beginning of the movie, we had the tents set up and then the fake out followed by the big jump scare, the real danger. That's kind of mirrored again here at the end. So we're all worried, ready for Jason to come through the door, but it's just the dog and everything's okay. Yeah. You know, we survived and the dog's okay. And then big scare, Jason just jumps through the window. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and it works. It works yeah. really well. Like I still, I'm not paying close attention. I'm actually like, yeah, you know, it's coming. I mean, you do. Even it's if you like, do know, it's a surprise because it's it just seems at the wrong time. Like it's just they get it at just the right time to where you're mm-hmm. expecting. Kind of like the jump scare with Jason at the end of the first one. You know, like yeah. I know it's going to happen, but you never know exactly what moment it's going to happen. You know. Yeah. Um, but we see Jason's face. What do you think about uh, this is the first time we see Jason and his face as an adult. This is kind of a recurring theme throughout the movies. You get like one quick look near the end of the movie of his face. What do you think about his look here? We see him unmasked. Well, he's got a lot more hair than we usually see. Um, yeah. And, you know, Carl Fullerton, who did the makeup, he said he actually tried to make it look. He took it upon himself to try to make it look more like the Jason that we saw at the end of the first movie. And I think in the um, uncut footage, when you see it, you can see him kind of turn away from the camera at, at a certain point, And you see a little, this sort of part of hair or part of his head that doesn't have a lot of hair um, that looks a lot more like the original Jason. And I kind of, that makes it seem a lot better to me. But um, in this one, he just seems like, you know, slightly disfigured mountain man, you know, like he's got a droopy eye. And apparently that droopy eye caused the actor to lose his depth perception. And um, he was super irritated by the makeup and everything as well. And I think the first time they had to film this a few times, they even had to like come back and film it later. Like Amy Steele and the guy that played Jason both hated doing it. And, um, you know, it was just a difficult scene. It sounds like there's really a lot of like people on edge and high emotions when it was filmed. I think it comes across (laughs) in my opinion. but it's, you know, the music does a really, another really good job making you think like, oh, okay. <laughs> For a second, you're like, oh, it's just something behind, actually, no, and then it gets you right away. Um, and uh, this, this Jason is the Warrington Gillette. Like there's a whole saga about 
Warren Gillette versus Steve Dash versus the like five, six other people that played glimpses of Jason throughout this movie. Um, and how um, you know, Warrington Gillette is the credited Jason. There's someone else credited as the Prowler. That's someone who played Jason in the prologue. Um, but Warrington Gillette was the only credited person and he did this effect at first and he did it again, but he was sort of like quit or fired for most of the movie. Um, and Steve Dash was brought on. He was the one who got his finger cut by the machete. And he's the one that did most of the chasing you know, Amy Steele around. But at one point, he got really upset at Warrington Gillette well after during the, when the conventions were going on because he felt like Warrington Gillette was claiming to do the stuff that he had done. Ah. Um, so eventually they had to kind of work something out between each other to do that, um, to both be the part two Jason on the convention circuit, I guess. Um, but yeah, I guess this, this sets up because this, this hits right after this jump scare. There's the ambulance sequence there the big question who lived and who died on this movie yeah it like fades to white as she's being attacked and then suddenly it's the middle of the day and she's being put in an ambulance saying where's paul so of yeah. course that's one of the biggest mysteries of the whole franchise is where's paul did he live and what the hell just happened uh was any of yeah. that real so how do you interpret the uh ending of this film I don't even know what to think. You know, like it's really hard <laughs> to um, to figure out. I think, you know, originally they say that Amy Steele was intended to die, but they they liked her so much and they decided that they needed someone to survive. Apparently forgetting about Ted and all the other campers that are still at the bar. Um, and they kind of wanted her for part three. But then Amy Steele says that she um, decided not to take part for part three. She actually says that um, the original, the script that she got for part three had her and Ted deciding to set off and go after Chase, which I thought would be really um, According to the director, this is not a dream. Um, the whole jump scare is not a dream that Paul and Paul survives. Okay. Um, and then, but we don't know how Ginny escaped Jason at this point. We don't know if Muffin's really uh, still alive. We don't know where Paul is. Paul's missing. She's asking where Paul is. Um, the opening scene of like opening bit of part three, there's that news broadcast and it talks about eight victims. Okay. If you count all the victims, there's Terry, Crazy Ralph, Sandra and Jeff, Mark and Vicky, Scott, and the cop. So Paul wouldn't be included in case they haven't found his body yet, you know, or haven't found one of his bodies. Um, the writer, Ron Kurz, he says that Paul was killed. And he says that what was supposed to happen is that Jenny would call out to Paul like she does. And one of the state troopers would say, we haven't found him yet. Um, and then they would cut to Mrs. Voorhees' head, that effect I was talking about where someone is up inside of her head and that it would, she would sort of smile and like maybe her eyes were open or something like that. Um, to Ron Kurz, although I don't really feel like this would have been communicated, he says that this smile would have communicated to everyone that, that Pamela was proud of Jason for getting Paul and killing him. I don't, I don't think I would have gotten that. Uh, you know, I think like, um, like the reason they left that out is because they thought it was too silly. I think that would have just looked too silly. People wouldn't have known what was going on. Novelization says that... Um, has a sheriff in the scene and the sheriff is thanking back and he's thinking we haven't found Paul Hole yet 
and we haven't found Jason Voorhees either. You know, so they're both MIA. We don't know. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird that they didn't find him. And we don't, I don't know, you can kind of imagine that maybe he and Paul fought and somehow he drove Jason away in some way, but also tied himself and became missing. I don't know. I mean, it's impossible to figure out for sure. It's another one of those things about this movie where you're just like, why do we have to have all these weird little questions? Like, I like some of the mystery, but like, there's just too many things. And it really eventually, after seeing the movie and thinking about it too much, it kind of drags it down a little bit, even though it's such an effective movie. It's so, it just drives through, like you like it, you enjoy it while you're watching it. You love all the scares, but when you start thinking about it, you're like, oh my gosh, like why did all these different things happen? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, what what's your interpretation of what's going on there? Oh, goodness. I have no idea. Um, you know, seeing it when I was younger, you don't, I didn't think about those things too much. Um, the the scene with the dog uh, finding his remains is so quick that if you're not paying attention, you can kind of miss it. So I think I hadn't even considered that when I was first watching the films. Watching it now, again, it, it does kind of like, wait, what's going on? Because <laughs> it, it's very sudden, you know? It's like you're in the middle of this battle and then Jason jumps through the window and by the time you're processing that, it's already cut to the end of the movie. Um, I guess I would have to go with a dream somewhere. Like maybe you could say that, okay, she really got Jason when she hit him with the machete and then all the happy stuff with the dog coming back as a dream that turns into a nightmare with Jason coming back in kind of like the nightmares at the beginning of the movie. Um, but yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's just not clear. (laughs) Yeah. It's not clear. Um, It'd be better if Paul wasn't in the shack with them because then you could just say, well, everything with Paul then it's a dream and he was really killed in that room with Jason. Yeah. But, but I, you know, he comes back unless she's dreaming like a lot of the movie, you know, which I think that's kind of ridiculous at that point. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think they must have had issues in post-production. Like when I read about the filming, everyone talks about being very happy filming. They, they did improvise a lot though on set. Like they had a script that they would, but he like Steve Miner would allow him to improvise and he would also with the script supervisor like improvise a lot of the ways the scenes would work you know like try to find opportunities there on the set and stuff like that um but I think it must have been at some point that some of these improvisations or something or, or something when they were editing they had to cut things to make the movie work or whatever and it just made some of these problems yeah, there's something that just didn't quite come together at the end, right? It's a really rushed movie. Like it, they decided to make this movie like when the first one came out. Like in those okay. opening weeks, they were like, let's do this. And then, so it came out in May. In July, apparently they made the decision for sure we're filming in September. <laughs> you know, we're going to start filming in September and do, I think sep- September, October, November was basically when they filmed it in 1980. And then it came out in May 1st, 1980. 51 weeks after the first movie came out. So not even a full year had passed when the second one came out because they were just intent on capitalizing on the audience, just like all these other 10 other slasher movies were competing for the same audience. And, you know, unfortunately when it was released, it didn't do 
that well. I mean, it did better than most of these other ones, okay? Um, so it did buck kind of the trend of like these other slashers, these other 10 slashers not really making that much money uh, or not being profitable. This one made, I think, 21 million or something like that around there. Um, now, Halloween 2 came out in October and it made 25 and a half million, something like that. So in the fight between Halloween 2 and Friday 13th Part 2, Halloween 2 definitely one, but Friday 13th part two is kind of right after it. The battle of all these uh, slasher movies that came out. I think, I mean, in terms of being effective, it's one of the most effective ones from that year for sure. Like, I think when we look back, it's one of my favorites. Although ultimately I think like just before dawn and my bloody Valentine are better, you know, this is still a Jason movie. It's the first Jason movie really. And it's, it's great. It's got lots of great kills. How do you think that this movie stacks up from other slashers around that time? Oh, man. Let's see here. I'd have to pull up a list and look at some examples. Uh, I think this yeah. one, again, like I said, it's so hard. We're also covering the Godzilla movies um, on the podcast. And it, like I said, it's so hard for me to critique these objectively because they're a big part of my childhood, really. Um, so... You prefer a Halloween two or Friday Thirteenth Part Two? Which one do you think is a better sequel? Probably Halloween two. Just like I think Halloween is a better movie than Friday the Thirteenth. Not to take away from any of them, but that's really good. And Halloween two just kind of picks right back up where it was. Whereas this one's already kind of a mess, you know, like Tom Spini and all them criticize. It's kind of a mess that didn't need to exist, but we love it, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But it's fun. You know, this is a movie I really liked it when I was younger. I liked um, part of the appeal for me at that time was it's kind of like you're peeking into the the adult world that you're not supposed to see, you know, especially if you're, uh, you know, somewhat sheltered kid. And then you're seeing like, oh, adult adult college age and they're drinking and smoking and having sex and there's blood and violence, you know, so that was kind of the appeal. So yeah, I'd have to think about that for a little while, but I consider this one pretty good. I mean, I've seen a good bit of slasher movies at this point. Nowhere near as many as yeah. you, but uh, a good bit. What year was The Burning? Was that 81 or 82? The Burning was was part of 80, that whole 81 thing. I think I've seen it as 82 sometimes, but I'm pretty sure it came out mm. that. It's not that Blood Money book that I was reading. It talks about like these phases, like how it was Halloween and then Friday the 13th was the one that really got everybody going. And although there were some movies who had kind of modified themselves to become gory slashers, like as quickly as possible, like Silent Scream and some other things, um, 1981 was really when all the copycats hit. And Friday yeah. the 13th part one was just another one of those. Um, and the others were like The Burning, The Prowler, those were both Tom Savini. Um, there was Just Before Dawn, Madman, and um, again, there was all camp slashers. Uh, and I think Just Before Dawn, that's where they're camping in tents. So that, that was their difference. We're going to camp in tents. Right, <laughs> Madman right. was really kind of directly the Cropsy legend almost, I think. And really The Burning, too. I, and Friday the 13th. They were all kind of the Cropsy legend. Um, and, then, and there's a documentary called Cropsy, if people don't know what I'm talking about. But um it's all those those uh, campus ones there was final exam which is fun it's got 
you know, some, some different kind of stuff to it. Happy birthday to me, which is more of a polished kind of when it's fun in, a, in a, its own way. Um, Hell Night with Linda Blair. Um, that's Terror Train one. came out. Uh, yeah, Terror Train? Google years was eight, 1980. Yeah, Terror Train was before. Now, Prom Night and Terror Train were really quick to, to come on the scene. And so those, those came out before this second sort of wave. Um, and Prom Night was kind of modified to be more of a slasher, I think. Um, but Terror Train was like really quick to capitalize, I think, on what was going on. Um, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis basically finished her whole slasher cycle by the time these copycats were coming out of me. Halloween <laughs> 2 was the end of her sort of slasher queen reign. Um, so I think people were at that point, they were kind of like, okay, you've seen these four or five slashers. They weren't all like Halloween or as good as Halloween or Friday the 13th. They just kind of got worn down. I mean, definitely in 81, I think it was almost like one every month, a week or so, you know, right. kind of getting ridiculous uh, at that point. And that's just the ones that you, you heard about. There's lower independent ones and stuff like that. You know, I like them all. I'm not, you know, I like slashers. I'm not, not going to apologize. Probably my favorite um, horror subgenre. And especially these from like 1981. I love, I love all of them. They're fun. Um, those early 80 ones are the best ones to me. But uh, yeah, My Bloody Valentine and Just Before Dawn are the ones that hold up the best, I think, and are consistently entertaining all the way through. Whereas the others are usually, they have great moments, but then a lot of times they're kind of boring. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. No, I do like this movie. Watching it again, I did like it. And um, there's, like I said, I was trying to put myself in the mindset of, okay, imagine if you've never seen this movie before. And then there's some pretty cool stuff, especially thinking back to pre-Jason, where Jason was just kind of hinted at in the first one. Uh, and you're not sure what's going on in this movie. And you just there's a lot of mystery before you finally see him. I think it works really well. And before we wrap up, I mean, we already kind of mentioned it. But so after she goes to the ambulance, um, then we go back to the shack and see Miss Voorhees heads there with no sign of Jason. And you know, as you've already mentioned, they had at one point intended to have it like smile or move Thanks. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and which is, was interesting when I found out about that, because seeing this for the I remember seeing this movie for the first time, like, oh, the head's going to come to life. The head's going to come to life. The head's going to come to life. And then it just doesn't happen. You know? Yeah. Like, oh, well. And she, okay. she talks about in that uh, bar scene, she says that Jason is trying to like resurrect his mother and that's so weird you know that never comes back um except at the end of part three where it's jason's mother's body that comes out of the lake for that final scare yeah we talk about we talk about part three but it seems like at some point maybe they were leaning towards this idea of like pamela coming back and maybe she's the killer for part three it's like a zombie or something that would have been cool (laughs) yeah but and i wonder you know why I always, I mean, it makes sense to me that they went with Jason because I think people remember that final scare so much from Friday the 13th Part 1. That's that's what's left in their minds when they leave that movie is really Jason. Um, but they could have said, well, like, who is Jason's dad? Like, maybe Jason's dad is the killer this time instead of Jason's mom and just leave Jason dead or, or even have it seem like it's Jason, but then, oh, no, it's Jason's dad or it's a copycat killer or mm-hmm. who's pretending to be it. And it could, it could always be a copycat killer now. It doesn't have to be Jason. We don't really know. Um, the fact that he's obsessed with Jason's mom doesn't make a lot of sense if it's not Jason, but it could be someone 
I don't know, maybe it's Jason's long lost twin that we never heard about. Um, but anyway, they could have gone a lot of ways with the sequel. So it's always interesting to me that they, you know, they decided, well, let's just copy everything we possibly can, except the things that we can't copy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and let's go with what we think the audience wants. And let's really keep an audience focused kind of when we're making this movie, um, not try to make it some kind of critical mess or whatever, or really try to explain all this shit. You yeah. know, let's just, let's just well, make it's... a fun horror movie. And it's a good idea that they did do that because when you look at the genre and the times when they try and do something different, people usually respond pretty negatively. Uh, Halloween exactly. 3 had the idea of, okay, let's take it in a different direction. People hated that. Uh, this Sean, Friday Sean 13, Cunningham, part five. Yeah, Sean Cunningham actually says that was his idea for a sequel was to do like an anthology, you know, mm -hmm. just like I guess John Crawford was thinking about with Halloween. Um, and, and Victor Miller said he he thought that was a good approach um actually sean cunningham says he considered a 3d sequel for part two um but you know phil scuderi was the big backer one of the big backers and he said it's jason so that's what it was you know and i think you were either on board or not <laughs> with that idea and i guess steve Miner was the first person he called that was like yeah i'll do it <laughs> you know give me my big directing break but what were you saying yeah just you know um Friday the 13th part five, they try to do something different, which right. I love that movie. We'll get to that. But uh, yeah. people did not like that part nine. Jason goes to hell, uh, which some of the criticisms are valid. But again, we're yeah. trying to do something different. And people are like, no, no, give us Jason okay. uh, hockey mask. <laughs> uh, and now, you know, with the rights kind of in a weird place, because Victor Miller has the rights to the part one, Jason. It was very interesting how part two Jason and the part three Jason, they're all different Jasons, you know, and like, so what right does he have to the part two Jason or the part three Jason? And I think they might have, the makers of part one and two might have, you know, kind of screwed themselves by making them so similar and referencing the first one so much in the second one that they've really tied the second Jason to the first Jason perfectly. Like they can't really go to a judge and say, nah, it's not the same Jason. Because <laughs> they make the point all the time, it's the same Jason. But they're gonna, if they're going to capitalize on Friday the 13th again, they're either gonna have to have an agreement between Victor Miller and Sean Cunningham to just do something together or make both make money off of it, um, even if they're not working on it together. Or they're gonna have to do something like say, actually turn Tommy into the killer or, or, or find another killer because he, he owns, the Jason character, Victor Miller now, or at least he owns a version of it. Um, it's gonna make them hard to make another Jason movie. I don't think he owns the trademark Friday the 13th. That's probably Paramount owns that. So they could make another Friday the 13th, I think. The big question is whether or not they could use Jason um, and at what capacity they could use Jason. So we could see at some point that they try to make it go with, with somebody else, but it's kind of doubtful that they would. Jason is really, married to Friday the 13th. Now you can't separate them. You couldn't, I think, do a movie that was just Mrs. Voorhees, for example, not that they could, but I don't think they would go back and say, now Friday the 13th is Mrs. Voorhees and that's it. You know, because like when they did the remake, well, they just gonna have Mrs. Voorhees and no Jason? No, because people wanted Jason. So they had to kind of combine the first three movies into the remake um, just to get to the point where he had, he was the Jason we, we know and love right away. That's, you know, it'd be interesting to see what, where it goes in the future since everything's really up in the air right now. Yeah, well, I think 
I think there are 12 Halloween movies right now. And I'm going to be kind of irritated if Halloween gets 13 before Friday the 13th gets 13. Yeah. I'm like, come on. It's called Friday the 13th. Give us the 13th movie. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't want to see Friday the 13th part 13? Right. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I dreamed about it as a kid and I thought I would see it like by 1993 because they, you know, part eight was in 1989. Like they were doing one a year. You were just like, oh, well few more years we're gonna be part 13 it's gonna be awesome he's gonna fight freddy in part 13 that's what we always thought was like part 13 is where he fights freddy um of course we had to wait forever for for that to actually happen and it wasn't part 13 but i'm still hopeful it has to be the next one though that they call it part 13 and they make a big deal out of the fact that it's the 13th one unless they're going to ignore freddy versus jason and kind of call it a nightmare movie but you know and then do part 12 and part 13 i don't know they have to have part 13. And if they just make it on Friday the 13th again and they don't call it part 13, I'll be mad. Right. Yeah, right now. I, I definitely want one more. And, you know, these movies, they are what they are. And I like them for what they are. And I was kind of annoyed when they did the remake um, because I'm like, look, it's already so ridiculous. Just keep going with it. You know, he's been, he's fought a psychic. He's a zombie. He's gone to New York. He's uh whatever friday 13th part jason goes to hell was he fought freddy he's gone to outer space just keep going you know yeah yeah so um i hope the next one kind of picks up maybe we could have i don't know whatever happens after jason versus freddy or whatever happened freddy versus jason or how did uh the setup to jason x begin how does he get frozen and all that or just pick up at the end of that movie have it be ridiculous in the future i don't care uh, yeah. i think you know to me it's like just somehow get back to a camp where he's killing um counselors and make sure that the the uh the ways in which the kills are done and then the actual kills themselves, like the, the way in which you miss that they misdirect the audience, and then the actual way in which they do the kills, make those unique and new and fun and have that be the star attraction. Don't make it be now it's in space or now it's in New York or now we're visiting, you know, Venezuela or something. It's like just make the new stuff, the unique stuff, and the scares and the kills. Because that's really what we're there for, I feel. Like I'm not there to see, oh, I wonder what Jason's going to do on a spaceship he's going to kill people in interesting ways. Like that's, that's why I would go there in the first place is to see him kill people in interesting ways and be scared. Um, too often, I think they get worried that they can't market it, you know, or like people don't want to go see that same exact movie. Well, they do. They don't want it to be the exact same. Okay, make some differences. Make it a counselor training center instead of a, a, a camp. Make it, you know, the killer male instead of female, whatever make these little tiny changes but give us what we have come to see like it's a friday the 13th movie you know if you want to make a different movie call it something else but we know what friday the 13th is if if i come to a friday the 13th movie and jason's not in the woods killing somebody in a fun way then it's failed <laughs> you know mm. like that's about all i need and if they don't do that you, you're just making a different movie that no one wanted to see well, that's, uh, I think we've pretty much covered everything there is to say about this movie, or at least for now. I've gone almost, this is, I think we've probably made a record for the podcast, longest episode, uh, which is great, of course, a lot to talk about. But we've still got 10 more movies to go. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> by the time we get to, um, you know, the remake, though, there might be another Friday 13th uh, yeah. movie. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, this is really fun. Anybody listening in, like I said, we already recorded the first one. This is the second one. I, uh, I hope we can continue doing more, Matt. I really enjoy having you on the podcast. And uh, if there's any other films you want to talk about while we're working on these in between, I'd be happy to uh, hear. We could do some more, do some other slasher films or whatever you're interested in. I know you're really um, into nature horror like I am. So it'd be fun to know. do stuff like uh, Madman or The Burning or just before dawn those those other summer camp slashers the final terror um any in the woods kind of early 80s slasher fits right in with what we're talking about um, we could even do the town the dreaded sundown um yeah yeah i'm up for anything it's just let me know yeah what about the uh the tv show i've got the the yeah. series but i haven't watched it yet and those would be new to me because i've only seen a few episodes i was never really that into the tv show i think you know i was kind of upset that it wasn't jason whereas right. the Freddy show was Freddy. You can actually, you can now see the Freddy's Nightmares um, episodes on like some kind of streaming network that has them right now. But um, I forget what it is, but you can, they've been added to streaming sites at this point. And I'm pretty sure that we're probably going to see a Nightmare on the Street box set um, some point in the next couple of years that might include Freddy's Nightmares. But yeah, it would, it would be interesting to um, talk about the TV show, even though it has nothing to do with it. <laughs> right yeah <laughs> all right matt well uh thanks again for having uh coming on and talking with us yeah. so it's very interesting um and we'll let's plan on doing part three or something else soon yeah that'd be great i had a great time as usual all right thank you everybody we'll be back soon with another episode should have another one with justin and mia soon i think we're going to be covering the host have you seen the host matt 2006 I saw it way back in the, when it came out. <laughs> All right, good. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't think any of us have seen it yet. So it'll be uh, pretty exciting to talk about something that nobody's seen yet. Um, all right. Well, with that, thank you, Matt. And we'll say goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, Matt.